0: Alright. Well, good morning. It is a, a stellar morning to be here and to uh, be in Revelation with you. So, uh, without any further waiting, let's, let's jump in. Uh, earlier this week, I was on Twitter, and I wonder how many times Twitter makes it into sermons nowadays, but I was on Twitter, and uh, one of the outdoor companies that I follow uh, tweeted a picture of a person standing on the summit of this mountain in New Zealand. And it was a, it was a gorgeous photo, I mean I wanted to be there, it was that, that beautiful. And uh, you know, as I looked at it, I could only imagine how exhilarating the, the climb would have been and how exhilarating it would have been to stand at the top at the pinnacle of this mountain, and to, to look out, to look across and see the other mountaintops, to look down and to see the, the lowlands, I mean, all of this was captured in this photo, and it, it was gorgeous. I mean, it was a magnificent picture, um, and, you know, I'm sure many of you have seen pictures like that, maybe even with one of those inspirational themes underneath of it. Um, but what captured me most this week with that picture is the caption that the company gave to it. So I, I'm scrolling through my newsfeed, and I look, and here's this picture, and underneath all it says is glory. I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting that they would just title this glory, being that this week we are looking at glory, and I'm preaching about glory. So, you know, I've really been, been thinking about that picture, and how that picture represents our human experience and our desires, and really kind of thinking through that as it compares to how the Bible explains what glory is and how it defines what true glory is. So I thought first, let's start with the definition. What is glory? Well, glory takes on two forms. Uh, As a noun, it means high renown or honor, uh, won by notable achievements or something of magnificence or great beauty, that the object has that. Um, As a verb, it means to take great pride or pleasure in. And, you know, as I I thought about those definitions, I thought, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, in both ways, we are fixated on glory. Uh, You know, some of us are, are a little more overt about it. You know, maybe our friends or people, not our friends, but around us might describe us as glory hogs. Um, others might be more subtle in the quest for glory. So people wouldn't describe you as a glory hog, but you know, maybe a little more quietly and privately, you're the person who, you know, when someone says something like that was my idea first, you know, you're t- I'm gonna get that in. I wanna make sure that the achievement, the recognition comes to me. Um, but either way, we want glory. You know, we want to be the object of glory, and we want to, to have glory in things and enjoy them and, and define our pleasure by them. And, you know, we chase after glory in two ways. Uh, we work for it, and we rest for it. Uh, in regards to work, and it's probably how most of us think of it, uh, you know, we work for glory all the time. We strive at our jobs to uh, maybe outdo others or to be recognized for our achievements and our hard work. Um, We work hard to build a bigger this or to have a faster that and to amass more things. Um, We might define our glory as your total value of assets. or maybe your glory moment is seen, you know, when you're, you're putting your, your Instagram picture up of, you know, you on the front porch and your your fair trade coffee set there with your Bible open and, you know, all these highlights and notes and, you know, you post it up and then you're checking it every 30 seconds to see how many people are liking and favoring. I'm, is that a little too close to home? Yeah, sorry. I'm not, but. Um, so, you know, we are all seeking and chasing after glory. Um, it, it's the, It's... It's our desire, and you know, the way we do that and what we're chasing after really reveals our hearts. But besides working for it, we also rest for glory. And you know, while this one's a little less detected, it's not as overt, and, and you might not realize it, it's just as pervasive in our lives. So think about it this way. I mean, do you ever travel or, or go on vacation or take a few days off and you know, go see something amazing? Uh, Maybe you go and, and, you know, you you go to this beautiful lake scenery or you go to the mountains. Um, Maybe you go to the beach and you're sitting in your chair and, you know, your eyes are closed and you hear the waves crashing. And some of you are there right now. And, uh, you know, you you feel the breeze just just blowing gently, maybe not so gently over your face. And you take a few deep breaths and you're like, Glory. Or maybe you go climbing or, or hiking and you, know, you reach this beautiful vista and uh, like the Twitter photo and you stop and you take it in and you're just captivated by its beauty. I mean, do you find those moments to be glorious? So you know, maybe the vacation thing is a, is a far stretch. Maybe you're going, I haven't been on a vacation in years and I would love to have one of those moments. Um, so let, let's bring it home a little more. Uh, maybe you've had a really hard day. You know, work, people were full of complainers, not you, of course, and uh, problems. And then you come home and your kids are going crazy, whining and arguing, which means now you're going crazy. So you're like, I've had it. And you separate yourself and, and maybe you go up and, and you take a nice soaking bath. Or, or maybe you're like, you know what? I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna watch a game with some friends. And, um, but you separate yourself and you leave and uh, you know, you're escaping those, those trials. And it's in those moments that you're like, Maybe you have one of those days where your kids are perfect. I don't know what those are, but maybe you have one of those days. And what I mean by perfect is because we all know, you know, theologically we're not perfect and we can't be perfect. So we're going to define perfect as, you know, they don't irritate you or inconvenience you. Um, So maybe you have one of those days and then you're like, honey, we've made it, we did it. You know, this is awesome. This is what we've worked for, this is what we want, right? So, uh, you know, maybe it's one of those things. But regardless of your moment, no matter what it looks like, um, you know, which I'm noticing a ton of like smiles and people like staring off now. So uh, you may be envisioning that, which is fine. Um, but no matter what your moment is, our language tends to reveal our desire for glory in those moments, you know, uh, both in its object and as, a, as an action. You know, it's in, those, in those moments, do you ever say things like, oh, this is heavenly? I see nods, yeah. Or, oh, this is what heaven should be like. Or, oh, I hope they have this in heaven. Or, now we've made it. Or, I've made it, right? I mean, that language, those words, reflect our heart's desire for glory. Whether you realize it or not, that's what you're doing. So it's something we want all the time. They, they, they show that deep down in our heart, we want glory. We want the perfect, we want paradise. Now, as a side note, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy those things, because now it's like, okay, well, now I can't go to the beach anymore. No. Okay. You can enjoy those things, but are you seeking the ultimate of fulfillment in those things, or are you enjoying the person who made those things? So so don't go off the the deep end here and throw the baby out with the bathwater, but what is it about those things that brings you enjoyment? Is it the object, or is it the person who made them? So... Why are we so preoccupied with glory then, if it's, if it's that drive and it's that desire in all of us? Um, well, simply put, we're wired for it. We are wired for glory. Uh, we are wired to desire achievement and pleasure and, and have it be all about us, and, and it's because it's in our sin DNA. I mean, that's, you know, if we go back to the garden and sin enters, and we have perverted everything from that point on. So the reason that we do that now is because it is in our DNA. We are wired to desire that glory. Um, You know, we saw this in the garden in Genesis. I mean, why did Adam and Eve sin? Because being with God wasn't enough. They wanted to be God. And since then, we have been searching and toiling for it all our lives. And You know, the the odd thing is that even when we receive or experience glorious moments, we pursue more. We want more. We thirst for more. And no matter how much we have, it's never enough. Because you see, the glory that we have here, no matter how good it makes us feel, is broken and tainted by sin. It's never enough. And the reason it's never enough is because the glory that we attain in this world has you at the center of it. No matter what form of glory you're chasing, no matter what story you were envisioning as I was as recalling those scenarios, who was at the center of those stories? It's you. And that's why glory here is never enough. Because even though we wouldn't want to admit it, you can never satisfy you. You can't be fully satisfied with yourself because you're not perfect. And if you're not perfect, you'll never experience perfect glory. But for sin to attain our desire for glory, for us to chase after it, there had to be a glory component before sin entered. And indeed there was. You know, The truth is God created us for glory, but not for the glory of this world. He created us for the glory of the next world, the glory of being with with him, which doesn't center on us. It doesn't center on man, but it centers on God himself, where he is both the object of, And the action of glory and you know one thing one thing we need to realize is that an effect of our sin skewed view of glorious is you know here and now we become pacified and content with the things of this world when we achieve these little measures and satisfactions we become content with them we become pacified with them and we stop thinking about the glory of god We see the things of this world uh, as great and we desire them above God. And we forget that the things of this world are broken. Uh, We forget that, that even though they are enjoyable, that they're not perfect. So rather than pointing us to the perfect, to the God who created them, we make them as the creation, the object of our desires. And this skew in our perception leads to a skew in our affections. When we trade the perfect for the imperfect, or the perfect for the okay, our affections begin to long for them, and we work towards that end. This is why Paul in Colossians 3 reminded us to be heavenly-minded when he said in verses 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your, minds on the things, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So if we are ever going to to pursue the glory of God rather than our own glory, we must be heavenly-minded, like Paul says. And today... I simply want to remind you. You're gonna hear that a lot, okay? Remembering our redemption. I want to remind you, and I want to encourage you to remember. Remember that you were created to have intimacy with God and to dwell with him. And we remember this by beholding Jesus and what he did to give us that perfect relationship to bring us together with God. And we remember this by knowing that true glory is in what God has prepared for us. And when we remember this perspective, we'll notice that our affections change. John Owen said it this way, "O, oh, to behold the glory of Christ, herein would I live, herein would I die. Hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and my affections until all things here below become as dead and deformed things, and in no longer any way calling out for my affections. So as we are heavenly-minded, as we look to the glory of God, we find that that our affections will change and not pursue the things of this world, but pursue the things of God. So let's take a look and see the glory that God has in store for us. Now, before we we jump into Revelation 21, I wanna set the stage for you a little bit because we've been in in different books. Uh, The book of Revelation got its name because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, this was given to the disciple John, and in Revelation, God is revealing his plans throughout history through a series of visions. And the, att- the intent is to comfort God's people in affliction so they will know what is to come and they may patiently endure affliction and tribulation. And this morning, we are at the end of this story. We jump in at the point where Christ has returned. All the people have stood before God and the books have been open. Everyone has been judged by what is written in the books. According to what they had done, Jesus has separated the sheep and the goats and to those redeemed by his blood, having faith in his atoning work on the cross, he has said, come and join me in a place prepared before time so that you may remain there for eternity in paradise with me. And to those who did not believe, he said, go and remain in a place of torment forever where there is no relief or quenching your thirst." Satan has been defeated. Christ has put all enemies under his feet. The final enemy to be defeated is ongoing death, and death is now no more. Every knee has bowed. Every tongue has confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, and we are now in the eternal state. That's a beautiful thing. And it's in these first four verses of chapter 21 where we see what this eternal state of glory is like. It's in this, and it's this description that we need to remember and we need to long after. So let me give you the outline for these four verses. And this is easy to remember because each verse is one of the descriptions. Um, first, we see that all things will be made new. Second, we see the church, the bride, and Jesus the groom united. Third, We see our perfect relationship with God. And fourth, we see the reality of that relationship with God. And notice I said, see, and I'm being very intentional with my words here, because God is is very intentional in in the words that he is using here. So take a look at verse one with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth and the first heaven, or first, yeah, first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So Here in verse 1, we are reminded that this world will pass away. And this isn't the only place we are told of this. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that the world passing away is part of his plan as he returns in glory to secure for us an eternal dwelling place. Uh, In Isaiah 65, 17, God promises such a renewal when he said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And this is the fulfillment of that. And here in Revelation 21, we see that come to pass. We see the regeneration of all things. The heavens and earth are are a renewed and glorified place. We see the groaning of creation that Paul talks about in Romans eight, gone because there's no more tension. We will be morally, spiritually, and physically new, receiving a new body, which a lot of us can't wait for, uh, which will no longer have aches and pains, uh, with no more disease. We will sin no longer, but finally and fully be delivered from sin and the desire to sin. It's here in these last two chapters of the Bible that we see perfection restored. You know, there are only four chapters in the Bible where sin is not present. The first two and the last two. And we see here that God is not repairing the damage that was done to creation when sin entered in Genesis 3, but regenerating it and making it new. This is what he did with us through Jesus. When we have faith in Jesus, God doesn't fix us to make us a better person. He regenerates us, making us a new person. And while we may look similar, we are not the same. Our old person is buried with Christ and we are raised anew with Christ. Our old person was dead, but now we are alive. It's this kind of transformation that will take place when God consumes all things. Everything will be different because everything is different. And it's here in this newly created order, the perfect home that the lamb will live forever and we will live with him being united to him as his bride. And it's this uniting that the scriptures point us to, our final and complete union with Jesus. And verse two describes that union. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. In this perfect creation, we, the bride, the church, will be united to Jesus for eternity. Here in verse two, The church is described as a holy city. And the rest of chapter one gives even more insight as to this city. So read with me verses nine through 16. We're going to read a chunk of this and verses 22 to see what this is like. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had had a great wall, a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the three east gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, and its length the same as its width. And and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, and its length, width, and height are equal. And then verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So in these, in these verses here, we see three beautiful descriptions of the church here. And it really excites me. And I get, I get pumped up to know that someday this will be the reality of the church. And that, that which I, we, long for in faith now, we will see with our eyes and experience for eternity. The first description of the church here is that the bride is radiant sparkling like crystal. I know your Bible says clear as crystal, but at the time this was written, crystal wasn't clear. We didn't have the techniques where it was this beautiful clear crystal, but it it was sparkly and it certainly reflected light in a beautiful array of colors and it made it highly sought after. So here the bride is described with this beautiful radiant sparkle. Why? Because she's been preserved. She's been cared for by Jesus. And this is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 when he writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Here we see that. And the reality of this is that Jesus did what was necessary to preserve, protect, and to sanctify his bride, the church. He met all of the requirements in atoning for our sin so we could be blameless and could be presented to him like it says here in chapter 21. And it's here in eternity that we will finally and fully be united to Jesus as his perfect bride. Second, we see that the Bride is diverse. The church is diverse, yet unified. Besides our union with Christ, uh, we also see the description of our union with each other as the church. Notice the acknowledgement, and, and we'll see this also here in another verse, of different groups and nations and tribes that make up the bride. Currently, we are a church dispersed. We are dispersed by time, from generations past to generations in the future, We are also dispersed by geography. We are spread out around the globe, speaking different languages, holding to different customs. But we are also unified. We are unified in Christ. We hold to one head, and that is Jesus, our senior pastor, our savior and redeemer. But there is a day coming, described here, when we will no longer be the church dispersed but we will be united together in perfect harmony to each other and to Jesus. All believers will be together in their union with Christ. We will be the same church, the same church as past generations. We will be the church, we will be with the church in Nepal. Uh, We will be with the church that is in Syria. We will even be with the church that is in Michigan. Well, the state up north. We will be together and worship in truth in one accord with no strife, perfectly glorifying God together. That is this day. And finally, we see the church described by its appearance. Did you notice the measurements of this city? Its length and width and height are all equal. That makes it a cube. Scripture describes only one other cube, and that's the Holy of Holies. And in the Old Testament, God tabernacled among his people and resided with them in the Holy of Holies. And in the New Testament, God dwells among his people in their hearts by his spirit. And even though God is with us now, we see him dimly. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And it's here in our final state when we are united to the lamb and we will see him clearly and fully. And this is why there is no temple in this city because we don't need to go to a place of worship. It's not somewhere we go. It's not something we do. It's who we are. Here in this city, worship is us because we are in a perfect relationship with God. And that's what makes verse three so glorious. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as they're gone. In our eternal state, we don't need a temple. We don't need an intermediary. We rest permanently in the presence of God. We see God fully for who he is. Who he is 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 the object of glory and the action of glory, the way by which glory comes about. And not only is God worth all of your honor and praise, but our pleasure and enjoyment, our glory is found in his honor and praise. Our glory is is found in his glory. Listen to how verses 23 through 25 describe this dwelling. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And Revelation 22, three through five says it this way. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will, they will need no, lamp, no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. You get what this is saying? No artificial light, no sun is needed because glory flowing out of God saturates this place. And we are seeing it with our eyes, with our own eyes. I mean, what happened to people in the Old Testament who saw God? They died because his glory was too much to behold. We could not as sinners look upon his perfection and live. It was too much. But here in our eternal home, we see, his, we see him face to face because we live. Think of how radically different it will be to see God face to face. I know it's hard to even contemplate that. Our minds have a hard time understanding that. So think of someone that you love dearly and the enjoyment that you get when you talk to them or, or you text them, because the reality is we don't talk to people anymore. So think of the enjoyment when you get when you're communicating with them and you're catching up with them and how you're doing, you're sharing things that are going on in your life. That, that's a wonderful moment. How much better is it though when you can FaceTime them or you Skype them or you see them face-to-face and you can embrace them? It is immeasurably better than talking to them. And, and, you know, there's something about face-to-face interaction which indicates a completion of that relationship. And for us, What we hope for now in faith, we will see when we look at God's face and we are with him eternally in his presence. It's gonna be an amazing thing to see God face to face. Our relationship will be complete and we can see God because we live. And what flows out of this dwelling with him is perfection. Sheer joy, the ultimate in satisfaction and pleasure and ecstasy. Nothing here could compare to. Look at how verse four describes our reality because we dwell in the presence of God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Here the curse is gone and all things that went with it. There's no more backbiting, no more gossip, no more death, no more cancer, no more sick kids, no more racism, no more aging, no more human trafficking, no more war, no more abuse. It's gone, it's all gone. And not only are these things absent, but remember Isaiah, we're not gonna remember them anymore. We're not gonna be in the presence of God dwelling on what things were like here. We are with him. We are with the perfect and things are now perfect. And this is great news. And I would say of these four verses, this may be the one that you probably recall the most. (laughs) But why? Why is this the concept of eternity that we hold to and remember while not remembering the others. I'd really challenge you to think deeply about this and to examine your heart. Are you excited about eternity because you won't have any more trials and afflictions? Or are you excited about eternity because you'll dwell perfectly with God where those trials and afflictions can exist? See the difference in those questions? See, afflictions today remind us of this difference. God uses them to point us to himself. They remind us that we don't belong here. And as good as things can seem to be, they're not perfect. And we cannot forget that. If we do, we settle for the imperfect over the perfect and we become comfortable and we look at broken things as good as it gets. John Newton in writing about affliction said this, Afflictions are useful and in a degree necessary to keep alive in us a conviction of the vanity and unsatisfying nature of the present world and all its enjoyments, to remind us that this world is not our rest, and to call our thoughts upwards where our true treasure is and where our heart ought to be. Though we live in a time of hurt and brokenness under the curse now, God is continually revealing himself to us. He shows himself to us through cancer, through racism, through sickness, through war, and through all of our trials and afflictions. Through these things, he reminds us of his grace and that a day is coming when afflictions will be no more because we will dwell with him and he has put these things to death. These things can't exist in his presence. You see, by grace, Jesus has attained for us an eternal place with himself where sin and its effects are eradicated. And the glory in this for the believer is not the relief of afflictions, but our presence with the lamb who took our sins so we won't experience those afflictions for an eternity. This is a beautiful, this is the beautiful reality for believers, that we will have an eternity to explore all of the dimensions of god's grace face to face unhindered by sin and its effects this is the glory that awaits us and what revelation 21 and 22 reminds us of is that true glory as seen here can only be known by knowing the living god the reason the glory here in revelation satisfies is because god is at the center of it. He alone is the object and action of worship. He alone is glory and the one through whom we will receive glory. So, church, remember your redemption. Remember the promise that what you hope for in faith now, you will see with your eyes. You will see a new heavens and new earth. You will see your groom, Jesus, as you are united to him. You will see God face to face, and you will see eternal life with no curse. Meditate on and remember Paul's words to be heavenly minded out of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for securing for us an eternal glory with you, for being the the object and action of glory, for being the one who has done everything necessary to bring us into your glory and to dwell with you face to face. God, thank you for Jesus, who through his life, his death, and his resurrection has made a way for us to be with our God and for you to be with your people. In his name we pray, amen.